Why does she always have to be right? Why does he say those things out in public? Why does she act that way? These are all probably some of the questions that have run through your heads as you're interacting with people. This week, we're going to unpack personality theories and look at the different theories that make up who we are and why we act the way that we do. Some of those good and bad personality characteristics. Let's get started. This week we are talking about personality theories and I would like to stress the theories part because if we think for a minute, how would we conduct empirical laboratory research on personality theories? Can we manipulate or change whether a person is extroverted or introverted? Can we manipulate or change how excited a person gets at new experiences? Of course, the answers to these questions are no. We cannot manipulate or change anybody's personality. We can still conduct research, and the vast majority of the research that we'll be talking about this week is correlational research. And so we'll introduce lots of different theories that will evaluate uh, and looking at personality from different perspectives. And then we'll, we'll support these theories with some correlational research. One of the earliest theories on personality development was actually from Sigmund Freud. As I mentioned earlier in the semester, we wouldn't talk about him again until the end. And here we are, talking about Sigmund Freud's personality theories. Now, Sigmund Freud had two perspectives on personality theories. And so the first one is that we have three parts to our personality. There is the id, which is spelled I-D, but it is referred to or called the id. The id, the ego, and the superego. All three of these aspects are really, for the vast majority, or most of it is, resides in our unconscious or a part of our mind that we're not even aware of. And so the id is the most primitive part. It is almost like the devil that sits on your shoulder. It's the first part of our personality to develop and we can see this clearly because if you think about a baby, a baby is solely driven by their id. It operates in the pleasure principle, what makes them happy, what makes them feel good. A baby never stops to say, oh, is this a good time for you? Can I cry now and can you feed me or can I get my diaper changed? They never stop to ask those questions. They just cry and hope that somebody comes running. That is the pleasure principle that the id operates on. Now, the, as we grow, we still have the id as a part of our personality. However, the id resides in our unconscious, so we're not aware of it. So Freud actually believed that when somebody says, hey man, why did you do that? And you're like, I don't know why I did that. Freud believed that you actually did not know why you, you would do some of the things that you do or operate the way that we do. An example of this would be sitting down and eating a whole sleeve or a whole box of Oreos. That is fulfilling the needs of the id. That is operating on the pleasure principle, not thinking about anybody else, not thinking about how you're going to feel after you eat the whole box of Oreos. Just living in that moment, 
that right now that feels good for you. The superego in opposition is like the angel on your shoulder. The superego is a heightened or a um, very enlarged sense of self-worth and sense, uh, sense of morality. And so with the superego, the superego operates on a very high moral focus. And so the superego would say, it's not good to eat the whole sleeve of Oreos or the whole box of Oreos because there's other people that live in your house. And that's not a good moral principle. It's not good for you to eat all of the Oreos without sharing them. We should think about other people. And we should also spend our time a little bit better instead of sitting around eating all those Oreos. That's what the superego would say. And so the superego is like, the angel on your shoulder, the id is like the devil on your shoulder, the id solely resides in your unconscious, the superego, part of your superego resides in the unconscious, but part of it actually resides in your awareness, so in your conscious awareness. And these are some of those moral thoughts that kind of pop into your head, you know, and distinguish what is right and what is wrong. And then in between both of the id and the superego is your ego. And your ego is where we make a lot of our rational decisions. And the id balances those innate desires or those very childish desires of the id to operate in the pleasure principle. And it also balances the superego and that heightened awareness of morality that the superego exists or that the superego exhibits. And so the id is that grounded, or I'm sorry, the ego is that grounded center part that balances these two and helps to make decisions in the rational moment. Now, because we are in this constant state of conflict, Freud believed that we develop defense mechanisms. Defense mechanisms are a way to really kind of alleviate all of this conflict that we feel between our id and our superego. And so the defense mechanisms, which are outlined, are things like rationalization, projection, regression, just to name a few. So I want to highlight a few of all of the defense mechanisms that Freud mentions. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's denial, um, there's projection, there's reaction formation, there's also repression, rationalization, displacement, and sublimation. So denial is just that when we deny um, to, we deny or refuse to acknowledge the source of our anxiety. So instead of saying that, you know, we're really frustrated at the situation, that we're stuck at home, or, um, you know, that we're really upset at a coworker, we may lash out at a family member instead and claim that we're angry at them and that their behavior is making us angry. When in actuality, we're mad about, you know, a work situation or something else in our life. Repression is when we um, stuff all of our anxiety and we stuff the situation down, we repress it from our memories. And so according to Freud, because he believed a lot in our unconscious desires and drives, he believed that we repressed or we stuffed all of our anxiety down into our unconscious so that we weren't aware of it and we didn't think about it. And so oftentimes people who have repressed memories 
they, it's almost as if they're in denial. Um, they don't remember it at all. They have um, repressed it or stuffed it down into their unconscious. Projection is fun because it's when we project our feelings, our, our anxiety onto someone else. Um, and oftentimes we project things that might be unacceptable. Um, so if we have like negative feelings about a person, we may project those onto that person. Instead of saying, I, I don't like you, we may say, oh, well, I, I don't think that she likes me. And so we're actually projecting our feelings onto somebody else. Um, another example is if you um, are in an argument with a friend and you may say things like, I really think you're, you're really upset at me, when in actuality, you are the one who is really upset with your friend at the time. So that's projection. Um, I'm going to skip down to rationalization. Um, rationalization is when we create logical reasons or excuses for our behavior that may be otherwise shameful. And so this one we can probably all relate to. Um, these are things like instead of um, saying, hey, you know what, I didn't, um, I didn't write my paper that was due this week. Um, I just couldn't get motivated or I couldn't figure out how, where to start or I was afraid to write my paper. Um, students come up with all kinds of excuses and they say things like, oh, I didn't have computer access. Or um, I had a student who said that they had their computer eaten by fire ants. Um, and so that's rationalization when we um, kind of rationalize our behavior instead of um, owning up to it because it's obviously um, creates a lot less anxiety by rationalization. Um, so those are just a couple. There's also um, displacement. Um, and there is um, regression, which we're, I don't, regression is not necessarily posted on here, but regression is another defense mechanism. And regression is when we regress to earlier behaviors so you'll see this in adults a lot and children. Um, adults regress and they throw adult-like temper tantrums um, or they throw temper tantrums, which is something that we would typically see in younger children uh, instead of dealing with their anxiety and they yell and scream. Um, another example of regression is adults when they revert to name calling, um, when they're in an argument instead of actually um, sticking with the facts or um, you know, discussing their anxiety and their feelings. With children, we see regression in that they'll revert to behaviors, childlike behaviors like biting or kicking when they're frustrated or when they um, are experiencing a lot of anxiety. So again, some of these, you may see some validity or a little bit of truth to it. But um, again, Freud was out there to make a name. So take them with a grain of salt. Again, our defense mechanisms are just that. They're a way of kind of defending ourselves against all this anxiety that we feel between our um, id, our ego, and our superego. So let's look at some other theories on personality development and personality. Now, very similar to Freud, 
The other theorists kind of focus on some specific aspects of personality or personality development. So the next group that we're going to talk about is the humanistic perspective, the humanistic approach. Now, if you recall, humanistic psychologists were very much the positive psychology kind of people. They were more interested in not studying dysfunction, but they were more interested in studying people that were fully functioning or self-actualized people, people that were striving to become better better people. And so, of course, we talked about Abraham Maslow uh, in the beginning of the semester with his uh, motivation theory. And another humanistic perspective is Carl Rogers. And Carl Rogers was a person-centered theory, and it was really investigating relationships and how our relationships may influence the development of some personality aspects, specifically looking at personality at a much grander scale. And so when we look at this from this perspective, what he was looking at is um, unconditional positive regard and how individuals, if they're given unconditional positive regard in their environment, then they will develop a congruence between their actual experiences and their self-concept. However, if they're given conditional positive regard, they will develop some incongruence or there won't be a lot of alliance or overlapping between their self-concept and their actual experience. For example, if a child is um, given conditional positive regard, meaning that their parents only pay attention to them or their parents only reward them or their parents only show them love and affection when these children get good grades, then the child may develop this self-concept that in order for them to be loved, they have to be smart and they have to get good grades. And if their actual experience is that they're not getting good grades, there's going to be a lot of incongruence. And this incongruence is going to cause a lot of anxiety and it's not going to um, align with their self-concept of themselves. And so that's going to create a lot of anxiety and ultimately potentially create some dysfunction. Um, So that was kind of one other approach. Another approach is the social cognitive approach, and this focuses on how our thoughts really shape our personalities. Um, And so they recognize um, the influence of how people think and how that influences our personality um, aspects. Things like the expectancy theory, which is Rotter's theory, in which our behaviors are a part of our personality and they are a result from how we think. And really and truly, they're a result of how we think about two specific things, our our expectancies for reinforcement or um, how much we're, how likely we are to get reinforced, how much we think we're going to be reinforced, how much we think our behavior is going to be reinforced, and then um, the values that we prescribe to those particular reinforcers. So again, if you're looking at a situation um, potentially of, you know, like being the class clown, if we think that everybody's going to like us because we're the class clown, then that's that expectancy for reinforcement. We think that people are going to be drawn to us because we have this very gregacious and outgoing personality. And if we ascribe a lot of value to that, meaning that we want to be the center of attention, we want people to like us, then that's really going to form a lot of our personality aspects. Um, The other uh, 
the other focus of the social cognitive approach is the locus of control. And the locus of control is this idea of how much we are able to control our experiences. So if you have a very high internal locus of control, then these people believe that um, the rewards and the punishments they experience are because of their characteristics internally. They deserve to get that. Whereas if you have an external or if you have a very high external locus of control, then you believe that you had no control over the situation. It was out of your control. There was nothing that you could have done for that. And so um, how this shapes our personality, of course, we have known a lot of people, or I'm sure you can think of people who um, have a very high internal locus of control, meaning that they feel like they're control freaks, maybe even you might say, um, and they feel like they have to control every aspect um, versus external locus of control. These people believe that they have very little locus of control. And so they attribute all of their success or their downfalls to external things um, like luck. It was just lucky that I won all of that money. Or on the flip side, they also attribute their failures to their external locus of control, meaning it was out of my hands. I could have never passed that class. The teacher had it out for me. I, you know, didn't, there was nothing that I could do about it. Another perspective in social cognitive approach is Albert Banderai. Um, and Banderai did a lot of research with um, social cognitive and with also some um, observational research. Um, and so he argued that there are three factors that really influence a how a person acts. And his theory is really reciprocal determinism. And so these three things that influence or, or factors that influence a person's behavior are the environment, person factors, which include personal characteristics like self-confidence and expectations, and then the behavior itself. Um, this is an interaction of these three factors. And so that's why it's called reciprocal determinism is because the behavior itself can reinforce um, the factors in the person's environment, including their self-confidence and their expectations. And so the three kind of work in response to each other, um, the situation at any given time may influence, um, you know, characteristics or self-confidence, which they may in turn influence the behavior. So again, looking at that class clown kind of illustration, um, if in the moment uh, that behavior is being rewarded, it's going to boost this person's confidence and then increase those uh, the likelihood of those activities or that uh, those actions. One last thing in regards to um, kind of the social cognitive approach, is um, kind of this self-serving bias that we have. And this self-serving bias is really kind of a way that we look at ourselves. Um, and it's the way that we kind of maintain a positive sense about ourselves. And so the self-serving bias is that we have a tendency to um, take personal credit for our success but blame our failures on external factors. And so this really kind of plays into that locus of control, but also kind of plays into that social cognitive theory as well. 
So we tend to, um, whenever we um, are successful at something, um, take for example, you do really well on an exam, you oftentimes, the self-serving bias is that we tend to say, oh, well, I worked really hard for that. Versus when we're not very successful, we tend to blame it on external factors. Like I, there was absolutely no way that I could have prepared for that exam. We've just had so much going on and my schedule has been disrupted, all kinds of other things. We talked a little bit about this in chapter 12. It's also one of those ways that we kind of maintain a positive aspect or a positive outlook on our own um, behaviors. It's kind of self-protective in a way. Um, one other approach that I want to mention quickly um, that is actually not covered in the textbook is the Neo-Freudians. And Neo-Freudians, um, when they were the people that kind of split off from Freud and they created uh, some of their own theories on um, personality development and they maintained some of the aspects of Freud, largely what they maintained is the um, unconscious aspects, but they changed it a little bit. So the two Neo-Freudians are Carl Jung and Alfred Adler. And Carl Jung believed in that we have a um, personal and a collective unconscious. Our personal unconscious is obviously all of those personal experiences that we may have stuffed down into our unconscious that we're not aware of. The collective unconscious is really kind of handed down to us from folklores, from old wives' tales, from stories. And we see this collective unconscious portrayed time and time and time again in children's stories and in books and in movies. And so this is the one that I really kind of like to talk about. Um, and those, these collective unconscious are oftentimes things like, um, you know, the bad guy always wears black. The good guy or good person is always dressed in white. Those are part of that collective unconscious. And Adler, or not Adler, Carl Jung believed that we had these archetypes. And archetypes are almost like these stereotypes that are continually, um, perpetually or fulfilled over time and time again. And we see them a lot. Um, I encourage you to look at things like Disney characters, um, Disney characters like Mother Gothel in um, Tangled. She has very dark features, and that kind of fulfills this collective unconscious, this archetype that we have about what is good versus what is bad. And so those really kind of um, perpetuate some of these uh, personality kind of aspects. Um, the next one, the other Neo-Freudian was Alfred Adler, and Alfred Adler was, um, he believed in individual psychology, but he believed in that we all have this striving for superiority, this innate desire to be better people and to grow and achieve, very much like the humanistic psychologist. But he believed that we, um, in an effort to strive for superiority, that we often compensated for our other failures in life. So if we weren't very smart, Maybe we compensated for that lack of intelligence by um, becoming very physically fit or working on our physical beauty. Or if we were very smart, 
but maybe we um, maybe we aren't as physically fit. We try and extenuate those uh, intelligence and try and enhance our intelligence so that and try and put ourselves in positions where we can show our intelligence so that we can kind of compensate for the fact that we're not as attractive or not as well fit or not as in a great shape. So those are just a couple of examples of the Neo-Freudians. Some more recent approaches to um, personality really look at trait theories. And trait theories or trait approaches are a way of studying personality based on some individual characteristics, tendencies to act a certain way over time. So these traits continue or these traits exist on a continuum, and most people fall somewhere in between on these continuums. So looking at some of the trait theories, one of the uh, more relevant one is the big five or the five factor theory. And the big five, which is Costa and McCree, uh, they are the two who have done a lot of correlational research with um, the five factor model, is looking at these dispositions or dimensions of personalities, these traits uh, over time. And so the big five look at these five, identify five basic personality traits. And they are, um, the acronym you can remember is OCEAN, which corresponds with openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So when we look at each one of these, the openness to new experiences, our traits like, are you very imaginative? Are you down to earth? Do you like routine or do you like variety? These are these people that are kind of low in the openness to experience. Again, looking at it on a continuum, you can think about it like from a zero to 100 scale. And people who are going to be low on that openness to new experiences are going to be people who like routine, who don't like change, who like things to stay the same. They're not, you know, maybe they're not as creative. Uh, maybe they aren't quite you know, out-of-the-box thinkers. They may follow along a little bit more so than other people. The second trait is conscientiousness. Conscientiousness refers to how, you know, organized you are, how neat and tidy you are, also how self-disciplined you are, how um, much you, how conscientious you are may also refer to how attentive you are to other people. Um, so that's our conscientiousness scale. And people who are high on the conscientiousness scale are going to be very organized. They're going to pay attention to a lot of other people's feelings and thoughts. They're going to be very careful and very self-disciplined kind of people. And then people who are low on the conscientious scale are going to be a little bit uh, less on that on those aspects. Maybe they're a little bit careless. They might be a little less organized. Um, these might be the people that... Uh, you know, have a difficult time um, sticking to plans and may not be quite as self-disciplined. The next one is extroversion. And I'd like to take a moment and look at extroversion because I'm also going to talk in just a minute about the Myers-Briggs and I want to clarify something. So obviously on one end we have extroversion and on the other end is introversion or not quite as extroversion. Um, extroversion and introversion are really just looking at um, where we get our energy from 
And so individuals who are introverted does not mean that they are antisocial. It also does not mean that they have an illness. Um, There are a lot of very highly functioning individuals who are introverted. Um, As a matter of fact, there's a whole book that's called uh, Quiet, The Power of the Introversion Behind All the Extroverted. And so introverted people just like Um, smaller groups of people rather than large groups of people. So when we're looking at the scale of extroversion, again, people who are highly extroverted are going to be lots of social people. They are going to be um, very outgoing and jovial. They're going to like to be the center of attention. They don't mind having the spotlight on them. Whereas people who are lower on the introversion scale are going to be probably a little bit more reserved. Um, They're going to be a little bit more uh, refrained. They may like smaller groups of individuals and they don't want to be the center of attention or have the spotlight on them. The next one is agreeableness and agreeableness are those people that are very trusting. They're very helpful versus individuals who are going to be a little bit more suspicious and uncooperative. So if you're high on the agreeableness scale, it doesn't mean that you're a pushover. It just means that you're trusting and you're soft hearted. You kind of go along with people. You don't want to make a whole lot of waves. If you're low on the agreeableness scale, then you're probably just going to be a little bit more uncooperative. You may even be a little bit more suspicious of people. The last one is neuroticism. And neuroticism really has to do with our emotional control, particularly our negative emotional control. And so people who are high on the neuroticism scale are going to be very worried individuals. They're going to be insecure. They're going to be kind of the self-pitying kind of individuals. Versus being low on the neuroticism scale is going to be much more calm and self-assured. And so it's not a not always necessarily a negative. And it's certainly neurotic Neuroticism is not equivalent to psychoticism or to um, being crazy or anything of that nature. Neuroticism just has to do with that emotional control that we have. So one other um, approach to these traits is the biological trait theory. The biological trait theory was Eisnick, and Eisnick was looking at the development of biological traits. So these um, internal innate dispositions that um, are proposed that personality traits kind of have two major dimensions. Um, how outgoing people were, and whether or not their emotions tend to be stable or unstable over time. And so Eisnick was looking at these two big dimensions for their sociability or their extroversion, and then their neuroticism and how emotionally stable or instable they are over time. Uh, extroversion tends to be more sociable and outgoing. Um, and Eisnick believed that these dimensions really reflect some basic biological processes uh, that some traits that were kind of innate or born with. Um, He also proposed a third dimension of personality traits, and this is psychoticism. And this reflects um, with psychoticism, and we're going to kind of look at this next week when we start talking about um, personality disorders. But uh, to somebody who is psychotic or psychoticism um, reflects a mix of aggression, poor impulse control, self-centeredness, and a lack of empathy. 
or what we would also refer to as constraint. And so you can look at the table that's in your chart, which is, uh, I think it is figure 13.19. Um, and so looking at these uh, stable versus unstable and extroversion versus introversion, he looked at, he basically laid out some characteristics um, that kind of correlate to uh, somebody that may be highly psychotic or some traits that may rate uh, somebody more highly psychotic, which would be things like much uh, lower emotional control and um, even to some extent, and this low constraint, but also to some extent, um, some extroversion. And so we'll look at how this factors in to what we would now determine or what we would call as personality disorders as we move forward um, next week. So how much does our biology influence our personality traits? There is some evidence that our biology or genetics may be linked to some personality traits, mainly based off of twin studies. However, there's obviously much more research that needs to be done in this area as we haven't identified specific genes that are related to personality traits. However, one other avenue that we'd like to investigate is temperament. And remember, temperament, as we talked about back in Chapter 4 from Human Development, temperament is the innate um, responses that we have in our environment. And our temperament is something that is exhibited very early on in life. And so they believe that it is innate. Babies are born with it. And it's the basic biological way that we respond to our situation and our experiences. Um, temperament, there's three aspects that involve temperament. And this is our activity level, our emotion ability, and our sociability. So when they look at babies, they look at their activity level, how active the baby uh, babies are or the baby is. They also look at their emotionality or their uh, stable, how stable their emotions are. So when a baby is given a new situation or a new toy, how does the baby respond? Do they immediately start to cry or is there, are their behaviors much more stable? And then their sociability, looking at how they interact um, and stare at other babies, how they interact with other babies, how they look at other faces. And so what we do know about our research from biological aspects is that there are some long-term implications of temperament. Early temperament or childhood temperament in babies tend to indicate the way that they are going to respond to other people later in life or those personality aspects that will start to be exhibited in the late teens and early adulthood. We also know that there um, is some evidence that our personality aspects are pretty stable over time. And so we may have this genetic predisposition to respond in certain ways, whether we want to call it temperament or what evolves eventually into personality. But these aspects are very stable or fairly stable over time. The only thing that can change them frequently times based on our research is that major life events can change our personality. But otherwise, 
they remain pretty stable over time. Now, the good news is, is that if you want to change your personality aspects, no different than other things in our lives, we are welcome to change those. Becoming aware of these personality aspects can oftentimes help us to understand ourselves better and then lead us to change things that we might not be too happy about. So there are some tools that we can use to study personality. There are things like the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Test, which is based on Carl Jung's um, research on personality. And the Type Indicator Test looks at these dimensions or these traits that we were talking about and basically puts them on a continuum. So you have extroversion and introversion on one end. You also have um, things like... Um, judgment versus perceiving. And so on this continuum, you're either um, in essence on one side or the other of the continuum. And it's based on how you would respond in certain situations or what you're most comfortable responding to in certain situations. I have posted a PowerPoint that covers all of the Myers-Briggs uh, personality indicators and the, or what they call preferences like extroverted versus introverted, sensing versus intuition, thinking versus feeling, and judging versus perceiving, and some basic characteristics, um, mainly because the Myers-Briggs uh, type indicator test is one of the more common um, personality tests. There's also the ocean or the big five factor personality test, which you can take. And in that, you will get something very similar to those results of the Myers-Briggs in which you're typically assigned a, um, uh, on, you're typically assigned traits on, based on those five or a, a continuum based on those five traits that then accompanies a little synopsis. Now, I oftentimes caution students, these are not to be used as a Bible, but more as a tool or a resource. So just because you score a certain way on a Myers-Briggs or on an ocean test, it doesn't mean that that's, you know, the destiny of your personality. It's supposed to be used as information or a tool or a resource in which then you can learn more about your personality and decide which aspects you like, which aspects maybe you don't like that you'd like to work on or change. There are some other tests that are covered in the chapter this week, um, things like projective tests. Projective tests are largely, um, they kind of examine that unconscious experience. So these are based on a lot of those psychodynamic or Freudian principles. And so what happens with the projective test, like the Rochot inkblot test, is that you're given an inkblot picture um, or these kind of ambiguous pictures. And the idea is that then you're asked to describe what you see. And the idea is that you're going to project your thoughts and feelings onto this ambiguous artwork and that there you are um, then projecting what you, your, um, ideas and your thoughts and those unconscious desires and drives onto this piece of artwork. There's also the thematic apperception test or the TAT test, which is very similar and that they show you pictures of individuals and they're looking for you to tell the story of what is happening in that, in that picture. And then they look at who you assign um, or who you most 
relate to in the picture and the story that you give with it. Because again, the idea is that you're projecting your thoughts and feelings onto these tests. There's some other ones that you can read about. There's also some cultural aspects. Uh, obviously, here in America, we are an individualistic society, and so there's a lot of emphasis that's placed on our personality and the differences or the traits of our personality. One of the things that we'll start with when we start talking about dysfunction is actually personality disorders and how difficult personality disorders are to treat largely because, well, all of our personalities are different. So who's to say that our personality is abnormal or not or dysfunctional versus somebody else's? I encourage you to investigate and learn more about your personality. There's lots of resources available. There's a link to the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Test. There's also a link to the Ocean Test. I encourage you to learn as much as you can about it because the more you know about your personality, the more informed you can be about how you respond to others in your environment.